Okay, so um, I've been thinking this week as I was thinking about praying and um, wanted to think uh, about praying with respect to what is going on in our world. I know it's been a very tumultuous week politically. We're in this like election season, which is very intense, and people feel very anxious about it, um, as I've talked to people. And then many of us were following what was going on in the UK and the big vote there and the UK leaving the European Union. What does that mean? I don't think anybody really knows what's going to happen with that. And it drew my attention to the book of Daniel. And I thought I would just read a passage before I prayed um, this morning uh, on that. Like Dan- the book of Daniel was written during a time, you know, when Daniel the, the, was taken away from his home and put in a foreign land. And there's all kinds of tumult. There's all kinds of sort of machinations of the powerful going on. And Daniel is caught up like, like a cog in a machine in the middle of all this. And he tries to make sense of it. And God gives him the ability to make sense of it. And he says this. He says in chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And that's a way to talk about the Messiah and the Christ. He came uh, to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed." As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, speaking there to what's going on in Daniel's immediate future. And then listen listen to this. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom, and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So would you pray with me? God, we are reminded in this scripture that though there are all kinds of machinations of the powerful going on in our world, and though we feel anxious, though we feel uncertain about the future, Though we feel like a cog caught up in a larger machine that cares nothing of us individually, we know that in fact you are Lord over all still. You continue to reign on your throne, to look down from heaven and to see what's going on and nothing escapes your view. In fact, we are asked to pray in scripture. We're asked to pray for our leaders. And so we lift up those leaders of these various countries we've mentioned this morning and all around the world. We pray for wisdom. We pray for your ways to be honored. We pray for your your wisdom to be inculcated and instilled in the culture and the way of things so that uh, you can be honored. And we just pray uh, against the weak and the marginalized being trampled upon in the midst of all the things that we see happening around us. And we pray that you would allow us to be lights shining in whatever darkness that we encounter, that you would empower us to be faithful followers of you who stand up for grace and for truth and for love and for mercy and for integrity and for righteousness 
salting the world by our very presence. So would you help us, we pray. Help us to turn our anxiety into prayer and and give it over to you, knowing that you, the Ancient of Days, continue to reside on your throne, and nothing will shake you. Make us confident, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to invite you over to the book of Ephesians as we start this morning, and I would like to bring up a word that is kind of cliche, maybe, uh, for some of us, and um, you probably have experienced this, you know, a word or a phrase gets into our vocabulary, and it's so overused that it just seems to lose its meaning, so, or a person, so take, you know, Shakespeare. Whenever we want to talk about somebody writing well, we, we say Shakespeare, and it's become kind of this cliche, right? Well, whenever you, you encounter a cliche or an overused phrase like that, um, oftentimes it's only become that way because the source was actually really effective. So Shakespeare really is a good writer. And so you go back and you, you research and read his plays and you, you realize, wow, this is amazing. I could see why everybody talks about Shakespeare. Well, in the spiritual life, there can become terms, phrases like that too that become so overworked, so overused that we, we start to lose sight of their meaning. And the word that we're going to focus on this morning, I think, is one of those kinds of words. It's the word salvation. And we use it so much when we're talking about Christian things, when we're reading our Bibles, that we sometimes lose sight of its meaning. And so today, I'm hoping that we're going to recapture a little bit of that meaning. Uh, Let's jump into this by kind of getting the context. Um, We're in this series about the armor of God, and we're talking about um, all the different pieces that we put on to stand firm against the dark, evil, spiritual forces of this world. And the Bible teaches that there is a spiritual realm and there are forces of evil in that realm and they're arrayed against us and we're to stand against them. And this is how Paul is teaching us to do it, by talking about putting on this spiritual armor. And one of the pieces of the armor, the one that we're going to focus on today, is the helmet of what? of salvation. There's that word, and so we want to unpack that a little bit together. But let's look at the whole context. Open up to Ephesians 6, verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll hand one to you. We'd love for you to follow along. You can take this Bible home with you if you need it. I believe it's page 676 in that particular Bible that we hand out. Ephesians 6, 10. We're just going to be looking at this one phrase in verse 17, but I want to give us the whole context. Paul writes this, finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. As we unpack just that one phrase, the helmet of salvation, this morning together, I want us to try and accomplish two things. First of all, love for us to see salvation again. So often the words like this that become overused lose their meaning. And I'd like for us to spend some time to see salvation again. Maybe if, if you're just sort of exploring spiritual things, this will be a first time for you. And I want to invite you to open your, your heart, open your mind to seeing uh, what salvation is in kind of a new way. And then I'd like for us secondly to talk about putting on salvation continuously, putting on the helmet of salvation. What does that look like? So let's, let's first start to see salvation again. Pastor Andrew, a few, few weeks ago, uh, Franklin, made a, an important point. He said that we're, we're very tempted to present the gospel, present Jesus Christ as an upgrade to what is already uh, an effective or good life. I thought that was a really good insight and a very important one for us, given our circumstances where we are. Um, we are in a society filled with abundance and there, with lots of wealth and opportunity. And people, in many respects, have what they need, certainly in comparison to the rest of the world. And we often come in and we talk about Jesus and we say, Jesus will just make all that better. He'll will upgrade your life. Uh, but to say that, uh, this was uh, Pastor Andrew's point, really fails to capture what's going on when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. It, it's too superficial. We're not just going over from life 2.0 to life 3.0. There's something much more radical taking place, and we want to explore that. If we really want to know what happens when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, we have to go back to Ephesians 2. So would you just turn there with me? Ephesians 2, verse 1. And let's explore this concept of salvation, which Paul so carefully articulates in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we're not talking about upgrades. We're talking about life and death. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
When we talk about putting on the helmet of salvation, we have to answer the question, what is it that we're being saved from? What are we being saved from? And Ephesians 2 helps us to answer that question. There are a lot of different aspects to the answer. In some ways, we're being saved from the meaninglessness of life. The very end of that passage in Ephesians 2 talks about being saved for good works, for a purpose, that we would walk in those works that God has prepared beforehand for us. If we were looking at different parts of Ephesians, we would see that we're being saved in some sense from isolation and loneliness. A big part of Ephesians is is how God is bringing peoples together and bringing the the community of faith, the, the body, the church together. And of course, we're being brought together in a horizontal way, but also in a vertical way with God. And so we're being saved from that kind of isolation. We could talk about being saved from destructive behavior. So in that passage we just read, it talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sins. And we know that's the case when we follow a sinful path, when we engage in the things that God never intended for us to do, it ends up being destructive for us um, and harmful to us. And so part of our salvation is, is from that. And all of those are important elements of what it means to be saved. But in that mix, we cannot lose sight of this very important one, which really stands at the center of that Ephesians to passage, and one that I think we often easily let go of, and that is simply this, is that we are being saved from the wrath of God. We're being saved from the wrath of God. So we're not talking here about an upgrade in life, going from life 2.0 to life 3.0. When we talk about salvation, we're talking about something much deeper and much more profound than that, um, much more expansive and much more uh, incredible. We're talking about salvation in all those ways, including from the wrath of God. Now, Paul has talked about this uh, in a couple of places in Ephesians, and he's really building on uh, an entire history of an understanding that goes all the way back to the very beginning of when God began to interact with people Uh, to bring about their redemption. So would you turn with me back to uh, the book of Genesis, uh, very much in the beginning, in chapter 6 in the book of Genesis. If you have that Bible that we hand out, it's um, page 3, I believe. Uh, Genesis 6, verse 5. And I want us to begin to understand a little bit of the background uh, that goes before Paul uses this term, wrath, in Ephesians. And it's so closely connected. It's the descriptor of of what it means that we're being saved from. Verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And you know the story of Noah. He builds the ark and climbs in there with his family. 
and they bring all the animals in, and the flood comes, the destruction comes over the whole face of the earth, and Noah and his family and uh, all the animals are saved. Um, and God makes this promise never to destroy the world again through flood. But it becomes a kind of a type. The story of Noah becomes a kind of a type for the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, which looks forward to a day in which God will bring judgment on the world for all the sin and the wickedness and the evil that's taking place. And we really can't escape this kind of language in the Scripture. It's right here uh, in the book of Ephesians. Jesus compares what Noah went through to the judgment that is to come. So Jesus himself makes that comparison. Um, He uses the phrase, the wrath that is to come, to refer to uh, what's in the future. Uh, In Ephesians 5, Paul circles back to this topic a second time. Uh, If you want to look with me in Ephesians 5, verse 3, uh, we see this very strong language. Uh, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, and let's just stop there and say, you know, this isn't primarily intended for us to be pointing fingers in every direction, but first of all, for us to be thinking about ourselves and how each of us falls into the trap of sexual immorality and idolatry. Adultery is just simply worshiping something that's not God. So this is, this is for all of us to hear. Um, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And listen to this. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And so right here in this short book of Ephesians, we have a fairly clear articulation of this concept, which goes all the way back to to Noah and this type of the wrath of, of God. If we were to go into the other parts of the New Testament, we would see that basically all the writers of the New Testament talk about this this day that is to come. And we haven't talked about the Old Testament prophets who talk over incessantly about the day of the Lord. Uh, And then uh, if if we look at the writings of John, um, John wrote the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, and he says this in John 16, 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And Revelation 19, 15 Speaking of the Messiah, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So Jesus came in meekness, but he will return in power. We need to know this about Jesus, too, when we think about all that's going on in our world and how much anxiety it produces, that Jesus, is, will, he will bring his authority to bear fully. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. I know I sound like a street preacher when I'm reading these texts, right? And, and here's the thing. We, we, we talk about, we, we often use that metaphor like, oh, we don't want to be like the street preacher. And, and I was thinking about that. Why do we say that? Is that really, should we really be saying that? I think we need to be careful. Now, I, I think in some cases, 
the street preacher only uses the wrath of God, only talks about the wrath of God. But we need to be careful that the, the in-house preacher never talks about the wrath of God, all right? We, 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 need, we need a scriptural balance, and, and that's what we're, we're striking and seeking for in this. And it's just hard for us to, to, to not see, unless we're really blinding ourselves or somebody is blinding us, to what is so clearly taught in Scripture in all sections of Scripture, by all the writers of Scripture, this awesome thing, the wrath of God, which works itself against all that is evil. And, and here's the thing about this that is really important. I, um, you know, these prophecies are a bigger deal than we often acknowledge. And it's not a question of whether or not we like it, okay? It's not a question of whether or not we like the concept of the wrath of God. You know, if, I'm, if a Mack truck is bearing down on me, it doesn't matter if I like or don't like the way the universe is made such that if I'm in front of a Mack truck, I'm going to be squashed. Whether I like that or not is irrelevant to the question. It's the, it's the reality that I have to grapple with. And, and, and the same can be said about uh, this understanding of the future. And I can try to make sense of it, and I, and I do, and... I try to think about, this may be the best way for me to make sense out of this whole concept of the wrath of God, and, and that is to, to get my mind around, to try to get my mind around the perfection of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and him maintaining his own character. And the only way that him to ma- for him to maintain his character is to react to injustice and sin in the world in a way that is true with his character. And I can try to get my mind around that, and, and I sort of do get my mind. But at the end of the day, that doesn't even matter. If I can't get my mind around it, that's okay. I don't have to understand everything, every nuance and every element. But what I do know is that it's there in Noah. It's there all throughout the prophets, the day of the Lord. It's there in Jesus' teaching, it's in Paul, it's in Peter, and it's in John. And it's critical for us to understand this word salvation. We have to do business with the wrath of God if we're really going to understand the word salvation. When I was a teenager, I was hurtling down the freeway. My friend was driving. He was a very inexperienced driver. We were going very, very, very fast, and we spun out in San Diego, large freeway, lots of traffic, five lanes. We spun out, went all the way across all the lanes, and ended up facing oncoming freeway traffic. We obviously pulled off to the side and made it. I'm here. Um, and, 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 and then my friend drove up uh, the wrong way uh, on the freeway, and and, and, and we pulled over, and we got out of the car, and we had one of those moments. You ever had a near-death experience where, you know, you just, you're just so in tune to what has just happened? And you're, you're maybe shaking a little bit, and everything around you looks different because uh, you've been so close to losing it all. Um, shortly after that, I was, working, I was working for an appliance installation company and um, I had my boss with me and, and he was giving me more, more and more work and I, I started to put in this cooktop uh, in this person's house and I get partway through and I look at him and I say, you turned off the power, right? 
and he says, no, I thought you turned off the power. And, you know, I was just a little guy, 100 pounds or something at that stage, and had I touched the, you know, it wouldn't have been long, and I would have been done. And I remember getting in the truck after we finished that job and just thinking to myself, I almost died. I just almost died. And having that sense, again, that awareness of how precious life is, how precious the people around me are. Um, happened to me uh, a few years ago. I was biking, and I was going down a hill, and going way too fast, and I came around a blind corner, and somebody was on my side in their car, on my side of the road. They were cutting the corner, so I had no space and no margin of error, and I swiped the side at a high speed of the, of the, the rearview mirror on the person's car, and I remember that night sitting at the table. You know, it's amazing any of us is alive, right, at all. It's just amazing. I'm sitting at the table looking at my family going, you fool, you know, and just feeling this sense of awareness, this heightened awareness. And what is it? When people have near-death experiences, they write books, right? Because they're like, wow, I almost died. And they do extraordinary things. I was doing nothing with my life. I almost died. And now I climbed Everest. I climbed this, you know, everything. I mean, people do extraordinary things after they have, and they write books after they have near-death experiences. Because there's something about it that reframes the way that we look at our lives. And I would submit to you that putting on the helmet of salvation is like that. It's acknowledging, it's living in the awareness of the narrow escape that has come because of God's grace. You know, that, that moment that after that near-death experience fades away so often. It fades away. And then you... you but could we, putting on the helmet is to live in the continual awareness of having just escaped narrowly with your life. That's what it means. And how does that happen? How do you escape in the spiritual sense and in the light of the wrath of God, how do you escape, how do you escape narrowly with your life? Well, there was this man whose name was God Saves. Isn't that interesting? His name is God Saves. Do you know what, is, what we call him? It's a Sunday school answer. Jesus. That's what Jesus means. That's what Matthew said. He said he will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. God saves. Jesus came on the scene. His name is God saves. For all who believe, here's the, here's the incredible thing. For all who believe in Jesus, he took the wrath of God, which was going to be poured out into himself for their sake. And so on that cross, you know, the physical pain was horrible, horrible. But the worst part is that Jesus was taking the spiritual separation from God and the wrath of God, all the hatred of God against everything that's evil and sinful and destructive in this world. that comes from God's perfect righteousness and holiness. He was taking all of that into himself, absorbing it and offering himself as the atoning sacrifice for it, for those who believe. So that we could be reintegrated into his plan for the world. And, and Kevin read that wonderful passage from Revelation 21, which describes the nature 
of the other side of the day of judgment when the new heaven and the new earth has come into being and people have been reintegrated into God's perfect plan. What was in the garden has now been reestablished in perfection. And all the causes, as Matthew puts it, all the causes of sin have been rooted out. And there's no more of that. And so God has been, he continues in his perfection. He's, he's fully righteous against injustice. But there was a dilemma because we were sinful, and so we were full of unrighteousness. And so God solved the dilemma by saying, okay, I'm going to pour out my wrath, but I'll pour it on myself because Jesus is God. That's, I'll pour it onto myself. I'll take it so that I can maintain my character and yet solve the dilemma of how to bring these people back into relationship with me. So you and I, the story of our lives is, I almost just died. I just almost died. And that changes a lot of things. Let's talk about that. The, the second point is, how do you put on salvation continuously? How do you wear this helmet? Now, when somebody put on a helmet for battle, they didn't, and you would, obviously, you don't put on a helmet and then go out and do battle and take it off part of the time and say, oh, it's bothering me, even though somebody's swinging a sword at your head. You leave it on. So how do we put on the helmet of salvation continuously? How do we live in the understanding that we just narrowly escaped? And the whole passage is about our resisting the work of the evil one, of what Paul's referring to as Satan. Um, and one of the ways that Satan works on us is to diminish our understanding of salvation, to make it seem like our salvation is thinner than it really is, to take away the whole wrath concept so that being saved loses a huge portion of its significance. Was I just saved from a meaningless life only? No. Something even more scary and, and, and powerful than that. And, and Satan wants to take that away. And the way he does that is he makes... You know, this talk of wrath seem quaint, like we've moved past it now because we're more enlightened people. But I would just, if you look, are we really more enlightened than we used to be hundreds and hundreds of years ago? I'm not sure when I look at the barbarity of the world that we inhabit. People are people and they keep doing the same awful, sinful things. But Satan would want us to think, well, that's such a quaint thing. For, that's barbaric from the past. But, but the thing about it is that it is barbaric, the, the, the wrath of God. But it's God taking all of that barbaric response to injustice, which is a good thing, into himself. Satan wants to keep us from that truth. He wants us to think about the wrath of God as being unfair. And, and, and I've struggled with this at times. I'm sure you have. You know? But the answer is this. Is, did, you make the, did I make the world? Do I know everything that's going on in the universe? Do I know how it was all put together? Who am I to question the fairness of God? I don't, my mind is too small. How can I possibly know? But Satan would want us to, to question and to take it away and say, oh no, God wouldn't be that. He's, that that's too unfair. Well, Jesus sure talked about this part of God a lot. Um, to make us self-conscious, that's another way that the enemy tries to keep us from this truth to make us self-conscious. I don't want to talk about the wrath of God and, and salvation because people will think I'm weird. Well, so what? 
it's more important to be loving than to be weird. And to let people know that the Mack truck is bearing down upon them is the loving thing to do. Right? So we're afraid of being odd. But I remember my, my wife one time, we're sitting in, a, in Santa Cruz, and, and somebody was walking down the street, and they, were, they, they didn't have vision, and there was a car coming. And, you know, I kind of looked, and I thought, ooh, this is not going to be good. And before I knew it, she was over the hedge of the restaurant and running into the street and, like, tackling this. She's not afraid of being weird, you know, <laughs> to save somebody's life. To save somebody's life. And if we have that sense, right, if we get it right, that's how we should be. Who cares if you have to leap over a hedge and look weird? Save somebody's life. Tell them the truth. So the result of Satan's work in our lives to keep us from a true understanding of salvation and really grappling with the depth of it and and the wrath of God and all those pieces is that our evangelism, our proclaiming the good news, becomes thin. It's not really good news if there wasn't bad news to begin with. So we've got to keep this in the mix as as we're loving people. And then also it affects our discipleship. We lose lose perspective. After a near-death experience, everything changes, right? Everything gets reevaluated. One of my closest friends lost his father this week, and I was grieving deeply, um, and especially because this close friend of mine and his father had one of the best, I mean, kind of a model relationship. I mean, it was one of those amazing things where, like, when he was 14, his father bought him an old rusty Mustang, and they spent two years you know, fixing it up so when he turned 16, he had a cherry Mustang to drive. I mean, that's the kind of father-son relationship they had. And they were in Hawaii, and a tragic accident happened, and his father died swimming, drowned. Um, And so, you know, all of us are just thinking about this, and it's a a hard week in that sense. And what what happens when you get close to the things that, the things in this world that are most important become most important again? And I remember thinking, you know, I thought... I just want to be with my kids. I want to be with the people that I love. And so in the middle of the day, as I was grieving over this, I called up my son, and I had to go to the dump. I dragged him with me to the dump, and we got lunch. And that night, I was able to, you know, make some beds that my daughters needed. And it was just, it came, it was born out of this sense of, I've been close to death. I want to, I want to do well with what's most important to me. And that's the perspective that we're to have if we understand salvation in the real sense. To live in that I almost died moment. That's what we're called to as Christians. And to have the kind of hope that comes when, we're, when we get a new perspective on the world around us. So that the trials of this life also get properly placed. So many things in life are inconveniences and yet we explode them into huge things because we've lost sight of the big picture. They're just, a, they're just frustrations in comparison to the fact that you just almost died, right? But when we lose salvation, we don't wear the helmet of salvation, we lose that perspective that I just almost died, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter, and that doesn't matter, and that doesn't matter. My grandfather was an awful driver. Everybody knew him to be a crazy driver. Uh, my mom tells stories of when she was a kid, he owned a car dealership. He would just grab a car off the lot. They lived just uh, outside of the Rocky Mountains in Canada. And he would just drive up into the mountains, road or no road. He would just start going in. And multiple times she would say, let me out. And she would open the door and get out of the car because he's driving over some horrible road or non-road. 
um, and she was fearing for her life. Um, I experienced this when I was in high school. He came to pick me up from school, and we had this horrible exit in my high school. You had to inch your way out there and really look and look, and you could never see, and there were four lanes of traffic, and Grandpa, who, by the way, his favorite phrase whenever he did something crazy in the car was, whoopsie, and then he would, you know. And so, of course, I can feel it coming. We're coming to this intersection. He can't see either way, and rather than inching out, (laughs) he just guns it, you know, and immediately cars are screeching to a halt, and I'm... I'm like embarrassed in front of all my friends because we're causing an accident, you know, and he says, whoopsie. Um, so, but the, the most memorable story of my grandfather driving was when he uh, took us on a snowmobile in Canada and we had to deliver something to a neighbor and we had to cross the Red Deer River, which was maybe a quarter of a mile or something. Uh, maybe, maybe I was really little, so it just seemed that big. Um, and we got on the snowmobile, and we start crossing in the winter. We start crossing the river. And my brother and I are on the snowmobile, and, and we look down, and we start to see the ice cracking. And we're, like, freaking out. We're talking to each other, what's going on, what's going on? And Grandpa just guns it, right? And so we're just going across the creek, and the ice is cracking and cracking and cracking. And we come up the other side, finally, and, and we're on dry ground, and we're thinking, okay, We've made it, and, and we say, Grandpa, what was going on there? We were going to fall into the river. He said, oh, it's only about six inches deep there. We'd have been fine. Nothing would have happened. Uh, apparently, there was a layer of ice, and he knew how all this worked, another layer, and it, it was not a problem. So we were in a panic, but he was fine and confident because he knew something that we didn't know. And the helmet of salvation works like that. So many of the problems in this life are only five inches deep. And if you know that, then you can go through them. And part of the way that you know that is because compared to the fact that you almost died and now you've been raised again with Jesus Christ, everything else, I mean, life is hard. I'm not trying to diminish that. But really, everything else is five inches deep. And as a Christian, if you know that, you can move confidently and boldly through. And you can be somebody who shares this truth with others. So I'm going to invite you to this table this morning, the communion table. And here's what I'd like you to think about as you come forward. I want you just to appreciate what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That awful, terrible, scary wrath of God, which is, which is a good thing because it breaks out against evil. But it's a bad thing when we're the ones who are doing the evil, right? All that wrath was poured into Jesus Christ, and and he is the atoning sacrifice. And so as you walk up to this table, I want you to meditate on that and to remember what Jesus did and what he took into himself. And then as you go around to the outside, I want you to have this thought in your mind. You go back to your seat. Gosh, I almost died. But because of the man named God saves, I didn't. And so to let that color your approach to this coming week and and months and and years for the rest of your life. So God, we invite you to meet us at this table. We want to be in contact with the depth of your salvation. So meet us, please. Remind us of what a wonderful thing you've done. And as we go back to our seats after taking communion, we pray that we would be confident We would have that sense of sober perspective. Knowing that we almost died, but we didn't because of your grace. 
and that you have saved us, that we can put on the helmet of salvation and we don't have to take it off. We can wear it day in and day out and, and that it would shape the way that we move through this life, that the things that are most important would rise to the surface, that we would, we would care enough about the people we love to share the hard truths even if we look weird. So help us, Lord. Meet us. And I pray for anybody this morning who in hearing the words of Scripture may have decided to place his or her faith in Jesus Christ, to have the wrath of God poured on Jesus instead of them. That happens by faith. We read that. It happens by faith in God's grace. If you made that decision this morning, this communion table is for you. And so would you also come forward and, and take the bread and dip it into the cup. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.